Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. All right, everyone, I am on the line with Deb Raji. Deb is a technology fellow at the AI Now Institute at New York University. Deb, welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. We've certainly got a lot to catch up on. Yeah. <laughs> There's a lot been going it's been an on. Exciting couple of weeks. Yeah. It's been an exciting few weeks, absolutely, in the uh the the field that you work in. Um mm-hmm. but let's yeah, maybe start from the beginning and uh have you share a little bit about how you came into artificial intelligence and um you know where it all started. I guess it all started in university, so I'm Canadian uh, for reference. Um, and uh, I kind of uh, entered on a whim the engineering program at the University of Toronto. Um, and that was where I actually learned how to code. So like my first semester of my first year was like my first coding class and I hadn't encountered that before, you know, coming in. So it was this like interesting, awesome experience. And I kind of just kept doing it and kept getting involved. And my degree was in robotics engineering. So I got a lot of exposure to the computer vision space and built some skills there as well. So I spent uh, between my third year and my fourth year, I had the opportunity to do this, to take a year off and do a year long internship. Um, so I did that internship at Clarify, which is this computer vision company in New York, uh, New York City. Um, and I was on their applied machine learning team there. And that's really where I like learned about the machine learning research community it was like the first time I went to NeurIPS, which is, you know, the big machine learning conference. Um, and it was sort of the first time that I kind of identified the issue of bias and the, the ethical concerns involved in, in facial recognition and um, in the in like computer vision as a field in general. So while working on models there, I kind of began to notice that even the research data sets um, and even, you know, some of the some of the data sets we were using as part of our engineering processes did not have, you know, faces that look like me. Like I was I was very aware of the lack of representation that was there. Um, and uh, it got to a point where I kind of just started <laughs> complaining about it. And people were like, we don't know what to do. And, you know, like it's already so hard to collect data at all. How do we think about bias? What do we like, you know, we don't understand this problem. Uh, and then it became very clear that it was just kind of this understudied phenomenon. And that was when I started kind of scourging the internet, trying to identify uh, anyone that was doing the same thing or had noticed the same problem. And that's how I kind of landed on Joy Blumwini's, uh TED Talk, which she had given, I think probably a year or so before, uh, she had given this TED Talk on her experience with attempting to use uh, open source facial recognition software and having the technology not identify her face um, because she was you know, darker skinned and having to use a white mask in order to be identified. And that was pretty much what her TED Talk was about at the time. And I was like, okay, cool. Someone else like... What does that even mean, having to use a white mask to... (laughs) So she had to use a white mask to um, have the facial recognition system, like, identify her. Oh, meaning uh, identify that there was a face there. Identify that there was a face there. Oh, wow. Um, Yeah. So it was pretty... Yeah, this is like... That was sort of the extent of uh, the articulation of the problem at the time. And that was what prompted her to start the Algorithmic Justice League project. Um, So I kind of reached out to her, like very recently after I started at Clarify and I was like, hey, you know, I'm noticing this thing. You gave a talk about this thing. Like, 
can we talk? Mm -hmm. um, and it was a very extra email. Like I was like already like really deep in the woods of like, here's these data sets that we use in computer vision. And like, here's like the very tiny percentage, like the data sets we use are, you know, 80 to like 95% lighter skinned um, subjects. So it, it was like really bad. So I was like, these are the stats. Like I've been trying to like get more info. Can you help? Um, and I think she was just kind of like, wow, this person like cares. <laughs> so <laughs> let me respond. <laughs> and her response was something like, yeah, let's talk in a month or something like that. And I was like, okay. Uh, a couple months later, we actually started talking and we started, you know, collaborating and working on some stuff. So at the time she was working on her thesis, which was around gender shades. So I helped her with that. Uh, and then, you know, as gender shades sort of, so gender shades came out February that year. So as gender shades kind of began kind of gaining steam and like, we understood that it was a problem that other people could also recognize and empathize with. I kind of was like, okay, cool. You have enough support that like I can kind of work with you full time over a summer or it was it ended up being a summer and a fall, but we ended up working together on this sort of follow-up study, uh, trying to identify what, what about gender shades made it an effective audit to sort of characterize and communicate these problems in a way that pressured these companies to sort of feel cornered to take action. Um, so that was a lot of the follow-up work I did with Joy and a lot of my subsequent work is thinking about, you know, how do we actually capture some of these like limitations or these failures that these models experience and how do we communicate it to the public, but also uh, to other researchers, to other engineers in a way that actually makes that limitation super clear um, and like raises concern in a way that prompts people to take action. Um, so that was a lot of what my journey is and that's a lot of the work I'm doing today. So, you know, following that, I started working with um, uh, Timnit and Meg at Google, and we worked on the Model Cards project, which was a way of sort of documenting and communicating uh, audit results. And uh, it ended up sort of becoming part of the engineering process at Google for machine learning models. Um, and then, you know, following that, like the National Institute of Standards and Technology is sort of taking up some of the the, the findings in our work and the, the terminology in our work. Um, so that was, it's sort of become a thing now. Um, and uh, it's, it really sort of stemmed from this desire to like identify the problem in a consistent way and communicate it in a consistent way. So that's kind of the ongoing work I'm doing today at AI Now and wherever I end up in the future. That's awesome. That's awesome. And so you, you think of the, the broad area as you've referred to audits um, on, on several occasions. What, yeah. what all is uh, kind of captured in that, that yeah. terminology? Yeah, so the reason I mention I talk about sort of auditing and some of the work I've done with Google will like refer to it as like internal auditing is, you know, anchored to the idea that so especially the work that I do with Joy, um, it's we look at models that are already out there that like someone already decided was like sufficient to, de to deploy. It had already passed whatever deployment conditions were already there. And the person had already sort of like thrown it over the fence. Mm -hmm. um, so we look at like models that are already built and deployed. And then we try to understand, you know, how they actually operate within society. How do they actually operate within a deployed context? So, uh, you know, for um, uh, gender shades, for example, um, building a test set where we identify different populations that could potentially be affected by such a product, um, represent that like each of these subgroups um, within a test set and then evaluate for each of these subgroups and discuss the results for each of these subgroups and the disparities between these subgroups is us trying to sort of simulate discussion around, you know, within society, how can we anticipate this model that's already, this product that's already out there? How can we anticipate its performance on these subgroups that we've decided that we wanna look at, that we care about? 
Um, so that's why it's framed as an audit versus just kind of like an assessment or an evaluation. Um, it's kind of these quantitative tests to see like when you've deployed this thing and it's already out there, is it actually good enough for these specific groups, these specific populations that we've decided that we care about and we want to see, we want to observe the performance on. Um, and this is a lot of, uh, a lot of the innovation of Gender Shades too, was not just looking at subgroups along, you know, one axis of race or gender, but looking at that intersection of, for this darker female subgroup that we've decided to, to, to you know, study the performance of this deployed system on, um, you know, how well does that, that model work for this, this subgroup that's at the intersection of different identities. Um, so that was also kind of an interesting difference between how gender shades worked versus how other kind of assessments had worked in the past. Um, and then the other sort of element of it, which I alluded to earlier, was this idea of a, of a user representative test set of I identify all these different populations that matter. And it's not about, you know, the fact that, let's say like 10% of the population in Kansas is like, darker skin. So 10% of my test set is darker skin. It's like, no, there are darker skin people. So it needs to work for them. Um, so they're going to be equally represented in the test set so that, you know, their performance matters just as much as the performance of any other type of user that I care about. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So we kind of implemented these strategies to really look at or allude to understanding better how these models perform, you know, in society once they're deployed, once they're already out there. We've talked about gender shades, but we haven't really said what it was. It's this this audit, but in particular, you developed this uh, this audit set or test set, and then you deployed it uh, against some of the public facial recognition technologies that were offered yeah. by um, several of the the cloud vendors. And it was, I yeah. think, there were two different iterations of it or releases of it with different yeah. uh, different vendor That's communities. Good. Yeah. Um, and that was on purpose. Um, so the first, the first audit was IBM Face Plus Plus and Microsoft. Um, and it was so the name of the test set, by the way, is uh, the Pilot Parliaments Benchmark, which is like PPB for short. Um, okay. And it's a test set where you know, and if uh, there's a great paper called Diversity in Faces, where they actually um, discuss sort of PPB in comparison to all the other test sets in facial recognition at the time um, or up to date, which is sort of you can see that. PPB is balanced for gender and also balanced for um, skin type. So you have like a, a set of darker images that are sort of equivalent to the number of uh, lighter images. And in other benchmarks um, in this space, you can see that the, the proportion is, you know, highly skewed towards lighter images and highly skewed male. Um, so it was sort of the first benchmark that encompassed sort of this balance and enabled this intersectional testing, um, which was really sort of the key differentiator between other, like just sort of the, the typical facial recognition evaluation process. Um, and then with respect to the, the companies that we were looking at, we kind of picked these very specific targets. Um, so the first iteration was Microsoft, IBM, and Face++. These were, you know, huge vendors in the space. And they were selling sort of off-the-shelf uh, facial recognition APIs, so like application program interfaces. So they would sell pretty much the access to the models, their facial recognition models. And if I'm an, you know, an, I'm an app developer, I can just take that model and send my images to the model to get a certain set of predictions. Um, so, you know, these models are being integrated in all kinds of applications through developer clients. Um, so we knew it was like very impactful technology. So um, what we did was we evaluated the performance of um, these different models um, on our test set and observed sort of uh, how well the models performed on these different subgroups. So darker female, lighter female, darker male and lighter male. 
Um, and the result of that initial gender shade study was that there was a you know almost 30% disparity between the darker female and the lighter male subgroup, which was really surprising. Like you would never, uh, you know, from my time working on a, on, a, on a machine learning team, I know that you would never sort of deploy anything that's, you know, if it had a 60% accuracy rate, you'd never deploy um, that system. So it was really surprising to see that on the darker female subgroup, it was performing at like 60% accuracy. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, that was sort of the initial shock of the first study. And then the follow-up study was to say like, well, after that was revealed, there was a very public, it was a very public situation. So a lot of the companies released statements saying that they acknowledged the issues. A lot of them reproduced um, the results and committed to doing better. Um, so, and all of them re-released. So within seven months, all of them had released new, so they had released new models, they retrained models and redeployed them. So we, in the follow-up study, sort of tested, well, how, how well, um, how much did these original audited companies actually improve their performance on this benchmark that we've, you know, designed? Um, but also, you know, the companies that were not evaluated, that were not audited, did they in any way get affected by this? And the response was that, you know, the companies that were directly audited um, did make that improvement, uh, but the companies that were not audited, including Amazon, which is sort of, uh, you know, one of the big players in the space and at the time was selling their technology to facial recognition, um, all those companies, including Amazon, did not, still had that disparity of, you know, up to 30% between the darker female subgroup and the lighter male subgroup. So they were still demonstrating that bias that um, we had initially identified, um, which, which was really alarming, especially uh, for Amazon at the time. Alarming, but also I think it says a lot of interesting things, right? It says that, um, you know, with, you know, with some investment, you can change it, right? Yeah. But you have to care. But it yeah. also says that external pressure is what makes you care, not just that. I mean, you've got to believe that Amazon and everyone else that's selling products in the space knew about the original oh, gender yeah. state study and, sure. you know, could have taken the steps proactively to address the issues. But based on the results of the, the second study, that didn't appear to be the case. Yeah, for sure. It also just reveals that if they're not um, audited for it, it, it's very easy for them to ignore um, yeah, like exactly what you said about external pressure, but also kind of like targeted, <laughs> targeted pressure to very specific, um, to specific companies. Yeah, if mm -hmm. they hadn't um, sort of been called out by name, the probability of them doing better is not is very low. And, it, you know, in a, in a study after that, even uh, another paper that we very, very recently put out called Saving Face, mm -hmm. we look at the different tasks. Um, so, you know, gender shades is looking at the gender classification task. So how well does it do on the binary task of identifying if this is a male or female. Uh, but there's other tasks, you know, there's like a smile detection task, there's the actual face detection, um, you know, um, there's age detection, things like that. Mm -hmm. um, and we we also evaluated for some of these other tasks using sort of a more, a, a benchmark with a, a, a lot more metadata. And what mm -hmm. we found was that the companies that were initially audited, not only did they, they only, they all only improved on gender classification. So they had, they still had like large disparities for age classification, for example. So even Microsoft that had been audited a couple of years ago, um, now they have like, you know, very small disparities between their performance on darker females and, and lighter males for gender classification as a task. But for age classification, for example, they still have like a 30% disparity between the groups. So um, yeah, you have to be very specific about which populations and which subgroups you're um, you're looking at, you're evaluating performance for, but you also have to be very specific about the task and very specific about the target. Um, and all of this is really more or less a case for like a regulatory regime where like everyone has to sort of 
restrict their use of facial recognition in specific ways or get assessed kind of universally across the industry in very specific ways for very specific tasks that we are worried about as a society. And also, you know, for very specific populations that we are concerned about as a society. So um, yeah, it's just, it kind of reveals how specific you have to be with respect to how you design these audits. Well, you know, what you saw is that folks can kind of uh, engineer systems for the test, like engineer yeah. their systems for the benchmark. And it sounds like uh, and to some extent, what you're saying is that that's what we need to happen is that we establish the benchmarks broadly and we, you know, through um, regulation or some other measure, uh, encourage the companies that are offering these technologies to engineer for these tests. And I guess there's part of me that says, you know, should it be something else? Should we show them like the error of their ways? And they say, oh, well, we should have a diverse team and we should kind of go off and think about all of these things. And, yeah. you know, maybe the, you know, can, can, the, can the tests ever be exhaustive? Yeah, that's yeah. a great question. I don't think I answered that question. <laughs> no, that's a great question. Um, because that was something that like plagued me for a long time too, where I was like, because uh, the other thing too is not even just with respect to the task. Because I think with respect to the task, and this is what the National Institute of Standards and Technology is really into is, um, you know, they identify that the gen that the, um, the the facial sort of identification task, which is the ability for me to like identify you as Sam, you know, identify myself as Deb, um, or the facial verification task, if there's two images of me to be able to see that they're the same image, like they see those as the most important sort of pertinent tasks with respect to facial recognition. So they will sort of focus on that. And they're like, well, we don't actually care about these other things happening. So we've already identified the tasks and they're, and then they'll say like, oh, you know, these are the, the groups that we care about. So we've already identified these groups. But then we rose the question. And this was a, a lot of our, our third paper, I call it sort of like, like an existential crisis paper, because it's kind of, it talks about some of these like loops exist that we need to talk about. One of which is um, this idea of, you know, looking at the intersection of, uh, you know, skin type and gender is just one way to look at it. There's other contexts in which it's really important to look at age um, and how, you know, how do you identify the intersection of age and gender and, and uh, skin type? Like that just gives you an infinite number of permutations. Um, and the way that we ended up sort of gaining some level of like peace <laughs> um, is to sort of, I guess, reflect on this as limitations of the audit structure and of, of an audit in general to say that there are certain things that you can learn from an audit and certain things that will actually be very difficult to learn from an audit and actually require different types of evaluations, such as pilots, for example, uh, piloting the technology or even like overall restriction. So this is one of the cases for the idea of a moratorium where we understand that there's concerns with this technology and it's not just the racial bias, right? So, you know, when the technology um, doesn't work in the case of what we've identified through gender shades, you know, when the technology is less performant on darker skinned individuals, for example, um, that puts them at higher risk. You know, if I get misidentified as a criminal at a higher rate than others, um, that's because of, uh, you know, the technology not being as functional for me as it is for another person. But then there's also the situation um, of, you know, especially in cases where it's difficult to properly assess the functionality of the system, um, you know, maybe we should just restrict the use of the system in general. Maybe we should just take it out of the market as we figure out and we learn these things that we have these sort of more nuanced conversations and discuss the other sort of facets of concern as we discuss other issues such as privacy and transparency that exist that we need to have honest conversations about in addition to like the complexities of that bias situation.
Um, so I think that's sort of been my approach to it is that there, there are actually very clear limits to these kinds of audits we need to be very aware of. There's a lot that we can learn from them, but there's also limits to what a standard can tell us and what you know NIST can actually do and can actually provide with respect to insight into how these technology, how this technology operates in deployment. Um, so we need to be very careful about that. We need to do a lot more thinking about that. And while we're thinking about that, maybe this technology that's like very clearly immature in certain ways needs to be taken off the market. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, I, I, I definitely want to dig into kind of the broader implications of facial recognition technology and, you know, the, the question of moratorium or not. Mm -hmm. um, but before we do that, I want to continue to kind of pull on some threads around your, your research um, yeah. the, and the auditing. Uh, and you alluded to this in, in your last statement, but I thought that la the saving face paper was really interesting in that it was essentially saying... Um, you know, this is our third, you know, auditing paper, you know, our third go at auditing and it's still hard and we yeah. still mess up and it's probably not enough. And you need to yeah. be really careful, even, you know, not just trying to field the technology, but just auditing it. Yeah. Um, can you talk a little bit more about what you found there? Yeah. So that saving face paper, I said, it's sort of like an existential crisis paper because, following gender shades and actionable auditing, we were sort of seeing these gender shades like audits appearing everywhere. Like everyone was kind of just building their own version of um, PPB, which is the benchmark for sort of any kind of task or any kind of situation. Um, and people were like you were, like you, you mentioned earlier, sort of um, uh, building to the test. So they were saying, yeah. okay, you know, we're gonna um, improve performance on on PPB or whatever PPB shadow we, we created for ourselves. And that is going to be sort of the bar. And once we're over that bar, then that is something sort of significant. Um, and that whole paper was us saying like, hold up, something like an audit like Gender Shades is a demonstration of, you know, some of these clear oversights with respect to testing. So the fact that, gen that, that you know, some of these really huge companies, their deployed products you know, failed. <laughs> like, so these are, you know, companies that, um, you know, they have m many people on their teams, and no one on the team had sort of tested for this previously, like that was the demonstration was to show that lack of oversight and that negligence. Um, so a, an audit like gender shades is really a demonstration of that negligence. And to point to the fact that there are, there are very clear gaps in the way that we currently evaluate and assess this technology before we deploy it. Um, and it's not necessarily the bar, it's its not necessarily a high bar to cross. So it's kind of like if you trip over the bar, that's embarrassing and you should be ashamed of yourself. Um, but if you, if you like, you know, if you pass the bar, it doesn't actually mean anything. There's still, that doesn't necessarily mean that there's no more work to do. So the saving face paper was us to say, was us saying, you know, just because Microsoft is now doing well on PPB doesn't mean that it's doing well with respect to, you know, age classification. Like I mentioned, they still have huge disparities there, but that doesn't mean that, you know, just because IBM is doing okay on PPB now, it doesn't mean that they haven't thought a lot about, you know, the privacy concerns that came up with their diversity and faces paper and Flickr, um, you know, just because um, we're having conversations around, um, you know, some of these audits being sort of uh, conditions for use. Uh, so, you know, we're, we're seeing a lot of policy conversations of, a gender shade style audit being sort of the condition, you know, you have to pass gender shades in order for your your model to be able to be deployed. And we're like, right. there are there are a lot like, of wait, that's not what we were trying to do. <laughs> yeah, here. Like there, there are a lot of things that need to happen before a system, like a facial recognition system, gets deployed. For one thing, like community consultation, so community participation mm -hmm. in that decision making process, like transparency around the performance of the system. You know, 
There's, you know, privacy concerns being addressed. So there's so many other things involved. It's it's not the bar to cross. So that was the main takeaway from that work was us saying, um, you know, there's so many other elements to this. And, you know, that those considerations can be integrated into the way that we assess our systems, right? So, you know, NIST could, you know, take on these sort of more qualitative aspects of, you know, reflecting on the assessment of these systems and uh, facilitating some of these processes required for any kind of deployment. Um, but, you know, we need to recognize that 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 whole, you know, this is a whole can of worms that is much more complicated than a lot of us actually understand at the moment. And we need to, you know, while we're having these more nuanced conversations, uh, take the product off the market, or at least, you know, support that moratorium stance of pressing pause, um, as we all have this, like, deeper conversation. Mm-hmm. The other thing, too, that I was at least personally realizing at the time, and I think Timnit and Joy were kind of going through this as well, where we were noticing that there were situations where the, the the issue was not that facial recognition wasn't working. So it wasn't that it wasn't even that like you know the the data wasn't encrypted properly or privacy wasn't um, or the data wasn't managed properly. It wasn't even that um, it wasn't uh, working for different subgroups, but it was just that it was being like actively weaponized by like this authority figure. So when you think about facial recognition as a technology. Um, I, I like to remind people that a face is the equivalent of a fingerprint. It's an identifiable biometric. So, you know, I have your face. I can do a lot of things with that, except, you know, we are so careful with our fingerprint data. There are so many standards around, you know, how to store that information, how to how much you can centralize that data um, about, you know, how many people. But when it comes to faces, there's, you know, no rules. <laughs> so people have these, you know, immense repositories of people's, you know, identifiable biometrics all in this sort of like centralized location that can be controlled by this authority figure. This is very dystopian. I apologize in the current times to like bring up this image, but. Well, but I think uh, we've seen, yeah. I think we've seen like the Clearview example exactly. uh, yeah. come to light earlier this exactly. year where yeah. I'm sure you're familiar with that. Do you want to share a little bit about, you know, kind of what you know about that one? Yeah. So Clearview AI was, um, you know, a group that actually, you know, was really, it was really great reporting by the New York Times to actually identify that group and really um, expose them because they were they were sort of intent on being sort of this covert, uh, under the radar stealth company for a very long time. But what they did was they looked at, um, they kind of collected uh, social media face data. So they were, they sort of did something that I'm reflecting on as sort of digital surveillance, where they would, you know, if you upload your face to Instagram, Facebook, uh, they were collecting all of this information and using like that. Like slurping data. all public pictures they can get their yeah, yeah. grubby hands. I mean, it was pretty egregious what they yeah. were <laughs> Yeah, like a cartoon villain type plot. Like it was like really awful. Yeah. And they were, and the, the worst part is that they were actually cooperating with law enforcement in different ways and pitching to law enforcement and different um, government agencies. So they were using that information to like identify either they were using it to identify you online or to identify you through, you know, surveillance camera footage and other sort of um, sort of terrifying modes of surveillance. So it was kind of a situation where, you know, they would give that power to any authority figure that could easily abuse it, easily weaponize it against you. Yeah, I would agree that the the law enforcement examples were the the worst in terms of kind of mass potential harm, but there was also a total lack of of governance where like from what I remember from the New York Times articles, like board members would say, Hey, can you find this person for me yeah. or something like that? And they would 
Yeah, yeah. There was also a story that I had heard of. I'm not sure how like true this is of someone like trying to identify like uh, employees trying to identify like personal like ex girlfriends and stuff. And it's like I'm very alarming. I'm reading that as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I was gonna say there's there are like there's there has been um, reports in the past that kind of hinted at this kind of technology where you know ICE would just show up at people's houses and people wouldn't understand how they found them, and then it was later revealed that. Um, they're, they're, they were matching sort of facial recognition data of like, you know, we know that you look like this based off of whatever mugshot or whatever information we have from your visa or whatever, um, and identifying your Facebook profile or identifying your, your trace online that way. Um, mm -hmm. So yeah, it really is this dangerous technology that like empowers some of these um, institutional bullies to kind of just barge into people's lives and like really affect them. Um, so it has these like, Kind of whimsical situations but also just like very important kind of dire consequences as well mm -hmm. we keep getting pulled into kind of these broader questions i'm still very curious about the the auditing thing one of the questions that uh, occurs for me is i'm curious if you if you explored not sure the the kind of pro, the taxonomy of different stand types of standards but when i think of standards like the ISO 9001, they're like yeah. process standards as opposed yeah. to like checklist standards. I don't yeah. know what the proper names for these are, but, you know, it strikes me that, you know, the analogy that comes to mind is like the Volkswagen gaming, the emissions yeah. standards, like they, yeah. you know, they had the, the car set up so that when they learned that they were in, you know, being tested, like it, it, uh, switch the engine to yeah. a more uh, environmentally friendly mode, yeah. but then the regular mode was, you know, just doing what it was Stumbling doing. Through, yeah. <laughs> and in, in this case, there's, I don't think there's like, well, is there an objective state of, uh, you know, a facial, a good facial recognition system or a facial recognition separate from the question of the use of facial recognition and should it exist and all that kind of stuff. There's not really an objective, all-encompassing measure of, you know, goodness from a diversity yeah. perspective. Like, there's all different things that you might want the system to be capable of, and you have to engineer them. They're, yeah. they're, they're not emergent qualities. You have to engineer yeah. them in. Yeah. Um, and so maybe the, you know... It, have you looked at this idea of like yeah. it being around the process as opposed to, you know, checking off boxes at the end of the process? Oh yeah. Yeah. This is like a huge part of my uh, current work. So I, yeah, just to like, cause you said a lot of interesting things in there. Like one thing around standards is that you're, you're totally right. I'm kind of curious as to, cause not a lot of people are reading standards. I'm like, I don't know. I, I'm curious as to, you know, which standards you're reading, Sam, but um, <laughs> um in, in my yeah you know, i've been i've been looking a lot at this question of standards in facial recognition mostly because it comes up so much in policy so a lot of policy um bills will sort of um either reference uh the national institute of standards and technology in the u.s which is sort of um the governing body around establishing some of these like metrics or these bars that need to be jumped over by industry players in order for them to be considered you know as potential vendors within, you know, uh, the sort of space of working with government agencies. Uh, so the National Institute of Standards and Technology is really the key kind of industry indicator of the performance of your system. If you're kind of 
hoping to, you know, work with different governments or different official bodies. And they very recently, like literally within the last year, you know, citing our paper too, which was very exciting. They only very recently started evaluating performance across different demographic subgroups. Um, and that just happened literally last year for the first time. So th they, before that, they hadn't incorporated that into their understanding of, um, you know, assessment and evaluation. And I think like with the Saving Face paper, we were actually challenging them to go even further and to say, there's all of these other considerations within the process of how a facial recognition system quote unquote works. Can you really say it works if it's violating the privacy of millions of people and there and it's, and there's no consideration for that? There's no pol privacy policy included or incorporated or reflected on. Uh, can you say it works if there's no method of you know transparent communication around its deployment and its use case and there's no clear evidence of like ethical consideration? Like, is that a system that makes sense to even consider to use? So yeah, some of those questions, some of those more holistic questions, are, they're currently like not even in that kind of space of assessment or evaluation like at the moment i think as far as it goes is kind of thinking about like how easy is it to use this and incorporate this into an application you know mm -hmm. um that's kind of the they're looking at it at a very sort of product level um so that's like nist but iso and ieee and other groups have actually thought about facial recognition wef has also sort of proposed some ideas around uh sort of assessing facial recognition technology uh, world, and they all care about yeah, so they actually, um, they sort of put together like a working group and they put it together a white paper on uh, facial recognition assessment. And there's other sort of think tanks that are attempting to kind of build frameworks for the evaluation or the assessment of this kind of technology. Because it's kind of this contentious, controversial tool. Right. Um, and people are trying to identify all the axes of concern and understand what you have to think about with respect to, will it ever be okay to use this tool? Right. Um, so that's why all think, different voices are in there. Yeah. I think the distinction I was trying to get at was one is a set of standards around the output of the the process. The other is a set of standards around the process itself. Like, you know, I, I can envision a standard says that, you know, a compliant facial recognition system um, has to be developed in a company where there's, you know, some kind of oh, you know, ethical review board project, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. process and yeah. where there's, you know, some percent of diversity on the team or something, yeah, yeah, some metric yeah. of diversity on the team that's working yeah. on it. And, yeah, yeah. uh, it needs to, you know, be, yeah. uh, the, the database, the training data set has to have some set of qualities as opposed yeah. to the output, you know, this yeah. the process through which it's developed. Yeah. Yeah. So this was this was something that we brought up in our saving face paper as well as a huge okay. issue where um, a lot of the current standards, um, even the ones that are focused on privacy, like the ISO standard is very, you know, into this idea of like, hey, this is an identifiable biometric. It goes under all of these things that we have for identifiable biometrics and it can only be stored in this way and it needs to be encrypted in this way. And they'll check the output. They won't check any process that you like they won't like the privacy policy of data collection, like the way that you collect mm -hmm. the data. If that was completely unethical, like they they just care that the data is encrypted at the end, right? Yeah. So that's their definition of privacy. And it's very removed from these processes, like you mentioned, that if they were mandated would allow for um, kind of richer measures to be in place and richer guardrails to be in place. Um, I worked on a paper with um, colleagues at Google of uh, called uh, Closing the AI Accountability Gap. Okay. Um, I, I had a funner name for it, but they all refused to let me. <laughs> but it, we, we effectively. Are, are you bringing that up because you want to say the name? <laughs> no, that... I'm not. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna. So I wanted, you know, I, I wrote it with a colleague named Andrew Smart, 
And uh-huh. I wanted to name the framework the Smarter Framework because his name is Smart. So I thought it was Got really it. funny. <laughs> no one else thought it was funny. So we ended up naming it the Smacter Framework, which is kind of, you know, it doesn't ring off the the the, the tongue as well. But yeah. um, and Andrew Smart, I think, just didn't want that attention to like Smart of the Smarter Framework was a little bit too much for him. But um, but effectively, yeah, with that framework, we talk about sort of these some of these procedural considerations like that framework is pretty much us trying to say like you know and us using the approach of documentation to try to really identify all of these decisions that engineers make so for example you know there might be someone that would have a facial recognition system where they would say oh this you know this system has no bias because we've evaluated it on like a gender shakes style audit you know we have these different subgroups and according to whatever you know uh whatever taxonomy or whatever labels that we have, you know, the performance of the model is equal for group A and group group B. So there's no issue. However, um, you know, with, you know, some of these, you know, with, with some of these process oriented audits that we did um, at Google, we saw that, you know, perhaps the way that the data was collected was incredibly unethical. And that's where a lot of the issues arose, or perhaps the way that the, um, the labels were set up. So the taxonomy of the labels and the way that, um, you know, because when you, create a computer vision system, you actually set up the targets for the system implicitly or explicitly. So you actually define, you know, this is the objective of what I want my model to do. And here are, you know, a set, you know, if I wanted to predict between a cat and a dog, I actually give it that label of cat and dog. And I select the images that represent cat and the images that represent dog. Um, And that process at the moment is sort of seen very callously as like, oh, this is, you know, I scrape whatever I get from the internet and that's what I use. Mm -hmm. Um, But there's sort of this realization that even some of these very subtle engineering decisions that we don't like to admit to ourselves are actually very important and there's ways that you can articulate you know goals for the model that are implicitly discriminatory whether or not it performs well on different subgroups um you know so that's um some of those procedural sort of elements or some of those engineering decisions even outside of some of the governance structures that you've mentioned around has there been an ethical review board that looked through this um or some of the questions that you were mentioning around diversity of the people involved, right? So, or even consultation with the community or with the public. So some of those, even some of those governance issues, um, separate from those in the engineering process, even there's a loss, there's a loss of accountability. Like um, one of the most sort of surprising things for me is how little uh, we understand, especially as uh, you know, a machine learning engineer, sort of the typical machine learning engineer, um, there's not a lot of accountability currently around, you know, data provenance, where I get my data from. So I can create a data set coming from anywhere, and there's no sort of accountability with respect to where that data is collected from and what that actually represents and which worldview that's coming from and which, you know, all these um, politics to that data source. And uh, there's a great project um, that actually happened at AI Now called Excavating AI, and I've been talking a lot about it because I think it does a good job um discussing sort of the politics of like you know which labels that you pick and you know where your data sources are coming from and the ethics of that as part of you know as an integral part of the ethics of the entire development system of the model yeah so that work was us trying to get people to write some of that stuff down so at minimum we can start talking about it (laughs) yeah the risk of going on another it's all good tangent divergence rabbit hole you, you mentioned uh, the decisions that machine learning engineers make, um, accountability in the engineering process, 
reminding me of the recent kind of thread with Jan LeCun, where mm-hmm. he essentially, at least the, the part that I'm referring to, kind of absolved research of any responsibility for bias in AI and said it's, you know, related to the things that that you just talked about, you yeah. know, engineering process and discipline and and the like. Uh, does that mean that you agree with his take on? Uh... No. <laughs> that was bait. <laughs> I didn't realize I came to be baited like that. No. <laughs> that was great. No, um, no, I think there's responsibility on all sides. So one of the reasons why I, um, I personally gravitate towards engineering uh, decision-making and accountability with respect to engineering decision-making is because uh, through documentation is because I understand that sometimes actually engineers do not understand their sense of responsibility and do not have the resources to support them in communicating about it. Mm-hmm. Um, but a lot of the things that we've worked on with respect to, you know, um, you know, action, uh, closing the AI accountability gap, but also an earlier work, the earlier work on model cards um, and, you know, related work in like data sets, data sheets for data sets and other projects. Um, all of that has been widely used by the research community before anyone else. Like the research community, um, especially applied machine learning work, uh, including computer vision and natural language processing, you know, a lot of that work involves the engineering of these models. Um, you know, and I, I recently like rage tweeted about this where it is so strange to me that Yang Kun said that because he literally works at an industry lab where they works they they a lot of the work um, that Fair does is you know a step towards productization and a lot of the models that they build, especially some of these larger models, all of these industry labs, the, a lot of the models that they build are models that other companies and other groups build off of. So they will sort of build these quote unquote general models, curate the data set required to train these large immense models. Um, that are then kind of fine-tuned by different groups using that model for different purposes. Um, but that that idea of building this general model for whatever purpose um, is a lot of control. It's a huge engineering decision. It's applied science effectively. So um, it's so strange to me that he thinks that that, is, that research process is separate from um, sort of the the engineering step and the the applications of that yeah of that work. Um, the other thing too is, you know, there's a whole separate set of issues connected to research, I think. The problems that you choose to work on in research, um, the way that you test systems in research um, really sets the precedent for the field in a way that I'm not sure he acknowledges um, with his response. He kind of downplays. So, you know, with the specific example that I think we're thinking of, it was this um, model that depixelized faces. So, you know, it would take mm-hmm. faces and attempt to reconstruct it. Um, and the my main issue with that work, or one of the big issues with that work, there's many concerns, but one issue is that they didn't seem to test for people of color. Uh, there were multiple examples of people depixelizing the faces of people of color, and then those people being reconstructed to look Caucasian. And um, it was just very clear that because it's not mentioned at all in the paper, and it's not mentioned by the creators until it kind of blew up on Twitter, um, you know, the the lack of testing for people of color continues to be this theme of it's it's sort of procedural negligence <laughs> where it's like why how could you not like there people of color exist um you know how could you not uh evaluate or assess for this particular group that is definitely going to be part of the people the group of people affected by this tool so i think him downplaying the severity of that oversight um was kind of is one of the main reasons i don't agree with him but also i i think there's there's multiple layers of issues there <laughs> 
I don't fully get why it's so important to some people to distinguish between algorithms being biased and data sets being biased. Like, <laughs> yeah. why, why is that? Why, why is that the hill that we're going <laughs> to die on? Because <laughs> we have to die on some hill. No, but I was going to say, like, I think I think that it comes from a place of like really um, not wanting to making sure that people understand that there's not a quick fix to this. So, you know, we heard for a long time, data is all we need. You know, we just need more data or we need more diverse data, in which case I do not have to think about, you know, diversity or ethics at this moment because um, I'm just creating a prototype. And the, the next iteration, I can think mm. about diversity and I can think about bias and I can think about data because this is just a data issue. Um, but there's been a lot of great work. Um, and I think you just kind of triggered the entire sort of fairness, <laughs> machine learning fairness community. It was uh fascinating to watch <laughs> um, where I know, <laughs> you know we'll, of, we'll link to the the tweet and threads yeah, and for sure, all yeah. that stuff. I think that would be you know as well as my depixelated uh, oh, there's, there's one of you there there is one of me yeah Robert Ness Robert Ness did it for me and gave me hair <laughs> Oh gosh! That's someone so said funny. it. Someone said the output had me looking like Steven Seagal. No, actually, <laughs> no. I said that. Someone said some other. Someone oh Seagal. And I said actually Steven Seagal. <laughs> oh my gosh! Yeah, and it's just it's so silly to me that like yeah that it's sort of something that's discovered on Twitter in the same way that it was silly to me that you know gender shades is something that is happening so recently and it's this new discovery of like you know when you test on people of color or women of color some of these things don't work. Um, I think that's for me, that continues to be sort of this recurring uh, frustration is like, how could you not like see this group of people that clearly exist and not evaluate mm -hmm. the performance on them? Um, and this but is it, a silly it, example. <laughs> yeah, it, it sounds like you're saying that this, this, it's not the algorithm, it's the data set is essentially, you know, either, you know, saying it's someone else's problem or kind of kicking the can down the road. That's why it keeps exactly. coming up. Yeah, because um, people that design algorithms, they actually do influence um, some of these outputs. They do influence like the fairness of some of these outcomes. And with respect to this particular work, um, there was an interesting uh, thread that didn't get as much traction, but there's another thread of someone that had tried alternate um, approaches to the problem. And he had actually gotten sort of more faithful representations reconstructed. Um, and it was because like, so his, his represent, when he reconstructed his faces, they were not all Caucasian looking, <laughs> they weren't all white looking. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, he had taken just a different algorithmic approach to the problem. So Maybe same underlying data set, the exactly. thick face HQ data set, yeah. but actually cared to. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Or just even took a different approach and got different results. Right. Like it wasn't mm. even, um, it was more that he had it was not fixing so, a problem. It, yeah, was it was just he was, he was approaching the problem, understanding that like black people exist and we should test for that as well. And mm -hmm. if it doesn't work for this group, and you know, if your black faces end up looking like white people, that is not a functional product that you can use for black people. Like no black person can use that product. And I think that for like because that was already at the forefront of the discussion, um, some of these like counter proposals of these other algorithmic methods that were that kind of preserved the blackness of the faces, um, to put it lightly, or even other people mm -hmm. of color too, there were Asian faces as well that it wasn't working for, Hispanic faces. Um, yeah, so people that had kind of come in with this use case in mind, um, were sort of discussing and exploring alternative approaches. And I kind of saw some of their preliminary results and I was like, yeah, that like, 
didn't completely morph the face into like, you know, Adam Sandler or whoever. Um, so I think like, yeah, there, there, there's definitely a role of algorithmic approaches. And this is like a well-studied thing. You know, there's there's so much literature on this. And a lot of people bombarded Jan LeCun with that literature last night. <laughs> 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 it's crazy because I, I literally feel it's like this happened a week ago. But I was like, no, that all happened last night. <laughs> 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 but yeah, it was kind of good to see some of these papers come out too, because um, so many people have so many misconceptions about how bias works. Like we often get the response of like, oh, isn't it just the data? It's like, no, there's so many uh, layers to this. Mm -hmm. um, so I think it was a good prompt for people to reopen the discussion of like just how complex that question of bias is and just how hard fairness is as, an, as a problem, as a problem space um, and how many different factors kind of like lead to it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I said I wanted to come back to the the topic of the broader topic of facial recognition, and yeah. we probably should do that if we're going to get to it. Tell me, I'm just curious, kind of your perspective on that, kind of from the beginning. Like, does it start with? I'm imagining it starts with the potential for harm and, and what those harms are, and maybe you yeah. can kind of talk through what you've seen. Yeah. So just like in terms of broader issues of facial recognition. Right. And, and you know, if, if the, the question that, you know, we want to put on the table or, or, or talk through right now is like, should facial recognition be on the market? Oh, I see. Yeah. Right. You know, where does yeah. the answer to that question start? Yeah. So I think like a lot of the work that uh, Gender Shades did, I think, was break the myth that facial recognition worked. Because I think for a long time, the debate was, oh, this system already works. You know, do we want it to be enabled within society as this surveillance tool, as the system of control, as the system that can be weaponized, you know, debates around what does it mean to be safe? What does it mean to have a tool that promotes or discourages safety? What does it mean to have different authority figures in charge of this tool? Um, what does it mean to allow or restrict specific use cases? So something like gender shades just broke the myth that it worked in the first place. And I think that was an important myth to break um, because this is very immature technology. So, you know, currently, uh, there's a lot of hype around deep you know more than anyone <laughs> there's a lot of hype <laughs> there's a lot of hype around machine learning there's a lot of really around, yeah just a little <laughs> bit a little bit and um it's really important to have some of these audits come in to say like wait actually it doesn't work for this group of people wait actually it's really biased and discriminatory in this particular way um and um it opens up the conversation for future reflections of wait, not only is it bias, but also there's these privacy issues. Oh, not only is it biased and are there privacy issues, but there's also very specifically concerning use cases that we need to pay attention to. And maybe, you know, the benefit is not actually worth the harm. Um, so like when we start having these, we start with this place of, wait, it doesn't actually work and it's an immature technology. And we move towards a place of like, oh wait, there's actually, even if it did work, there's all of these other concerns. Like I said, when it doesn't work, there's issues, but there's also issues when it does work. So I'm um, starting with that place of like, wait, this is not this magical, you know, functional thing. Um, just breaks, like the rose colored glasses kind of come off and people are much more comfortable questioning other aspects of the technology. And I think where we are today is that, you know, Amazon, Microsoft and Facebook, not Facebook Plus, <laughs> Amazon, Microsoft and uh, IBM have all kind of, very recently come out publicly to say there are clear limitations of this technology. We have been confronted with the facts, <laughs> um, but also, you know, we understand this concern and we now resonate with it in the con in the current context of sort of, um, you know, racial injustice that we're seeing in this in this country. So we understand that the risks are here and we understand that, you know, this 
technology is immature and not really um, ready for market. So I think that's why that idea of a moratorium of like, let's take it off of the market while we have these conversations around regulation. So like, you know, proper restriction, um, but also disclosure, like, you know, if any kind of agency is using facial recognition, how can we in- empower sort of members of society and the community to like be part of that process and to understand when facial recognition is being used on them? Because right now, we don't know <laughs> the extent to which, you know, Georgetown's um, 2017 work um, looking at sort of the prevalence of facial recognitions use in the US, you know, by police, by law enforcement specifically, we don't even know about immigration and other groups. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, that was so shocking to so many people that no one had any idea because it's, it's a technology that someone can use on you without you having any clue. So, mm-hmm. you know, can we actually enforce disclosure? Can we actually enforce, you know, some of this community participation, but also, you know, can we reconsider what it means for the technology to work? Um, is it just accuracy or do we actually have to understand that it has to work for different subgroups or do we actually have to start having conversations around, like you mentioned, process and privacy and all of these other complex things? I think the work of um, exposing you know, the bias is sort of like a good way to just expose the complexity of the technology itself and break that like myth of just like a perfectly functional kind of tool. Uh, and then once that myth is sort of broken, then people understand that like, oh, this is a Pandora's box. There's so, this is a very complex system. There's so many dimensions of concern here. Uh, we need to be way more careful than we are currently being around, about it. Um, and as a result, you know, um, maybe it's not ready for, it's not ready to be so widely used. You know, right now it's used in a lot of places. So maybe we should just be more careful and should just pull it off the market as we have these deeper, longer conversations about sort of the complexity of what it is. Yeah, mm-hmm. so that's sort of how I approach kind of the facial recognition issues in general, yeah. Okay, now if I parse those recent announcements and remember them correctly, IBM's announcement was the broadest of, of the ones that I remember seeing. They said that they were gonna stop developing facial recognition technology yeah. for, I don't know if there was a time frame associated with that or if it was indefinite. Yeah. Uh, Amazon, on the other hand, it was a fairly restricted moratorium on the sale of facial recognition to law enforcement agencies. Yeah. And I don't recall Microsoft's, the the scope of their announcement. Their announcement. It was very vague. Uh, it was very vague on purpose, I think. Uh, okay. they said, <laughs> yeah, I, I'm also trying to figure out what Microsoft's announcement was about. <laughs> <laughs> Having read it several times. Yeah. And watched the video. You know, I'm still trying to figure out what Brad, Brad Smith was saying, but <laughs> uh-huh. um, yeah, but they all kind of made broad sweeping statements in different ways. Um, I think uh, most shocking was Amazon um, because uh, they had been so stubborn, especially with us. They had sort of, um, they had, yeah, they had sort of, uh, you know, when our, our second paper came out and we had kind of called out Amazon and, you know, shattered their rose, rose-colored glasses as to, like, you know, how functional their situation was, um, uh, you know, we had to face a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, I guess, like, aggressiveness coming from them. And they're, well, like... they posted a... A blog post. Fairly flawed blog post. <laughs> yeah. Rebuttal, correct? It's a very quick kind of, like, off-the-cuff, like, uh, yeah, like, I, I feel like it was just him being angry and just wrote a couple paragraphs and put it out. But also in subsequent interviews, too, you know, I read a lot of articles that quoted him. Um, and this is something that came up in um, 
the documentary that we recently, there's a recent documentary that uh, Algorithmic Justice Re League sort of released, Coded Bias. Um, and there's a scene of like me, Joy and Timnit, who's uh, the co-author for Gender Shades. And we were, we were sort of sitting there talking about this blog post. And um, I remember one of the things that struck me about that conversation that I'll always remember is like us, we were like, we worked for like months. We wrote this paper, it passed peer review. All of these things happened in order to validate our results. We had like, you know, so many supplementaries that we like, because we wanted to make sure that our results were sort of validated and could stand up. And this guy writes like a overnight, like blog post with zero citations and like, you know, in the press articles, they're quoting these things as if they're like equivalent sort of rebuttals. And we're uh -huh. like, <laughs> what? Yeah. But do you have <laughs> like, a sense for? So yeah, that was uh, that was my frustration with Amazon. But they, uh, I think, do you have a sense for what drove you know oh, them yeah, to respond in in that way? I mean, IBM and Microsoft and and others were kind of confronted with the same realities, and they said, okay, yeah, this is probably pretty bad. Let me, you know, let's do something about that. But Amazon resisted that. Yeah, I, I suspect um, I suspect this happened for a couple reasons. One being that ACLU, so I'm not, you know, I'm not privy to exactly what's going on internally at Amazon, but ACLU had a couple months before the summer before our paper came out, um, released a couple reports that they had found of um, Amazon attempting to pitch at the time. They were in the process of trying to pitch their technology to ICE, um, to, you know, different intelligence agencies, to different law enforcement agencies. Um, also, you know, um, Amazon uh, through their Ring product. So Ring is sort of the smart doorbell product, mm -hmm. smart surveillance doorbell where they'll <laughs> sort of monitor your porch. Um, where they were trying, they were thinking of the idea of implementing sort of facial recognition and Amazon recognition um, to help process the footage from these Ring products. And they had a lot of partnerships with, you know, thousands to the order of over 3000, I think, um, police, police departments at the time. So for them, it was sort of, at the cusp of this very like promising economic opportunity, we had kind of just like clipped their wings a little bit by um, revealing the fact that their technology fell short for for people of color, especially uh, you know darker darker skinned women. So by just demonstrating and questioning the functionality of that product, um, we really sort of threw the whole threw the whole product into sort of this period of like people really truly questioning and revisiting like does this thing actually work oh but also privacy oh but also surveillance and like it kind of just was like the it's always the tip of the iceberg to this larger conversation and i think they understood that because that had that's what had happened for microsoft and for ibm um so i think that was why they were super defensive initially um but thankfully you know the research community really came out um to support us um they wrote this public letter, there was a lot of press around that letter where they had kind of just <laughs> refuted all the like things that Matt Woods has said in his blog post, but also, you know, other statements by Amazon later on. And um, it kind of ended up in a place where they conceded that we needed policy. They sort of kind of made this appeal of like, okay, so regulate us, which is a similar appeal to what Microsoft had said. Mm -hmm. um, and the difference between kind of those earlier appeals, you know, right at the publications of our, of our paper, there's always this uh, response of, oh, we, we support regulation in facial recognition. You know, this is what Amazon said. This is what IBM said and same with Microsoft early on. And the difference between, between that stance and the current stance is that um, I think currently they now understand or they're now sort of pressured to understand <laughs> um, that, uh, you know, you can't just say that you support facial recognition policy and that you acknowledge the concerns um, without while also having the product on the market. So, you know, if you say that you care about the concerns that have been brought up around your technology 
and that you support the development of policy and regulation for facial recognition, you can't keep selling, you know, that that technology at the same time. So, you know, the recent announcements around we are no longer sort of selling this technology, we're no longer allowing it to be used is a step forward to say that, you know, we recognize that until there is some greater understanding and that work has been done, um, you know, we, we really should not keep promoting this technology or keep deploying it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, their their response for a long time was I don't even I, I'm trying to remember if they they were saying it was in their terms of service, but or, or yeah, in general they were saying that you know no law enforcement agencies were making decisions based on this recognition alone. It was you know people were making the decisions, and I'm curious, you know, what you've seen in terms of kind of the failure mode of that you know, rationale and, um, you know, or, you know, specific examples of, you know, have there been well-publicized examples of, you know, the the use of facial recognition technology and policing for harm? Oh, for harm? What's the, you know, that resulted in harm? Like, what's oh, the current yeah. state of that? Yeah, I think most most of these cases result in some harm. Um, there's a great um, there's a great report from Georgetown Law. I think Georgetown Law has done a great job tracking the use of facial recognition in law enforcement, um, and honestly, just exposing some of the malpractice that happens in that space. Um, I think one of the you know more striking examples is the way that law enforcement, and this was reported mul- on multiple occasions. You know, law enforcement will try to use facial recognition in order to identify suspects in video footage, right? So they might, mm-hmm. um, you know, have a crime happen. I get some footage of the video scene and then attempt to match, you know, uh, faces in their mugshot database with, you know, whatever they can identify from the footage. Mm-hmm. Um, or, you know, the more kind of scary situations, they'll take, uh, you know, sketch descriptions of a face and try to match that with mugshots in their database, um, you know, or other sort of iterations of, you know, insane, you know, there's one reported case from Georgetown of them photoshopping like a celebrity face kind of because they, they were told that the, that the, the suspect looked like, you know, this particular celebrity. So they were like, okay, let's see, like in our mugshot database, if we can try to match, you know, this celebrity face, like an arbitrary celebrity face, you know, to, you know, someone in our database. And, you know, they, they definitely, and this is a huge element of it as well. You know, uh, the idea of how these, um, how this technology is actually being used is another layer of concern. <laughs> it's mm-hmm. another dimension to think about because Amazon in their rebuttal to us always talks about the idea of thresholds. You know, we want us, you know, we tell our clients to use a 99, so right. starting off with a 95% threshold. And then when the press got worse, they were like, oh, actually we met a 99% threshold a 99% threshold um, for all groups. And then if you do that, then there's no more bias. Um, and then uh, there was a great reporter at Gizmodo that actually went to investigate and talk to one of their police clients. And the police client was like, what is what is a threshold? <laughs> we don't know what that is. And mind you, the default is 80%. Uh, that the, the, this is like the confidence threshold to make a prediction. So yeah, there's so many ways in which, you know, this technology is being incredibly misused by, you know, different police clients in ways that are problematic that just, it's not built to be used as. Um, And then there's sort of the other case um, of the technology being explicitly weaponized. So one situation that I think of often is um, the Atlantic Towers sort of plaza is, uh, you know, a rent controlled, uh, rent stabilized building uh, in Brooklyn. And uh, the residents of that building recently uh, protested the landlord's installation or 
uh, application to install facial recognition in the building. And if you like sort of study the details of that case and discuss with the tenants, um, it becomes clear that their concern is not just around sort of the discriminatory performance of these systems or even, you know, the level of privacy, but the fact that their landlord is, they know that their landlord is trying to evict certain people because it's rent controlled so he can kind of raise the rent um, if he kind of gets rid of certain people and brings in new tenants. Um, but also he kind of has a history with these tenants of, um, you know, harassing them in different ways and mo over monitoring them and attempting to track their, track their, um, their movements um, and kind of uh, jeopardize, kind of paradoxically jeopardize their safety by virtue of installing all of this surveillance tech. Um, so they understood that the technology was not for their own safety, but for the sake of this landlord to be able to kind of weaponize its use to monitor mm -hmm. them, to, to, to control their actions, to threaten them um, and, you know, threaten their safety and their, their security, their home security. So it was, it was a interesting situation of like, not even the functionality of facial recognition being part of the conversation, but just the conversation of like, wait, this is a tool where, you know, you one person has a lot of identifiable biometric information about you. And, you know, this authority figure can choose to use that for good, or they can choose to manipulate that and um, really, uh, you know, weaponize that against you. So, um, yeah, there's sort of those situations that come up with respect to how facial recognition is used is like the client that doesn't understand how to use it and messes up in a way that hurts people. Um, the technology not even working and being mm -hmm. sort of too immature to actually do its job. And then sort of this situation of uh, the concern being around the authority figure not being very trustworthy. And, and we're, in a, we're in a current sort of state of society where not a lot of people trust the police right now. <laughs> There's a lot of questioning of, you mm -hmm. know, the police authority and um, sort of the validity of some of these, some of these groups that um, some of these authority figures that actually currently have a lot of the access to facial recognition today. So people are really beginning to question, you know, what does it mean for us to build these tools and put it in the hands of, you know, certain authority figures that we're now questioning that we that we now don't trust as easily. So yeah, lots of very complicated questions with respect to, you know, how it ends up hurting people in the end. Yeah, it makes me think of um, some of the work that Abiba Barhana is doing around um, trying to shift the frame of reference from, uh, you know, where is this possibly working to, you know, who is this possibly harming and yeah. using that as the using that as kind of the core question that we're that we're asking. Um, yeah, for sure. Yeah, no, I totally um, I totally agree with that shift. And I actually I've been like telling a lot of people about, um, you know, because there's this whole community in AI and the machine learning community about like AI for social good. Right. So it's a space where there's sort of this active imagination or imagining of like positive use cases and it's kind of this exploration of different positive applications of AI um, and I've been sort of pushing my idea which you know it's it's it might get some pickup soon of this idea of AI for social bad where like like we need to actually understand <laughs> you know how it hurts people and we need to like taxonomize you know the harms that come up we need to really reflect on some of these downstream consequences and like build a vocabulary for, you know, all the ways things can go wrong and I, the way that things impact society. Yeah. Yeah. I agree with that. I think, you know, part of my question earlier around the examples is trying to, to get at that. And I guess I, you know, I haven't, I have not seen a kind of broadly publicized like pro publica compass version of facial recognition and law enforcement, yeah. you know yeah. what I mean? And yeah. I think that that, 
you know, we've seen kind of the the implication. I can't tell you how many times I've seen ProPublica Compass, you know, images yeah. and slides and things like that. Yeah. You know, yeah. I think we need those kinds of examples so that people understand what the what the challenges are. The applications are, yeah. I would I would really recommend to anyone that's interested in that to check out Georgetown Law's work on this because I think they're probably the closest to identifying, you know, the ProPublica um, the ProPublica article was really compelling because they had against kind of selected a very specific target and they were able to um, recreate the situation using very specific examples and, and pull everything together in a beautiful story. Um, and I think the Georgetown law work with respect to looking at some of these um, real world applications raises up important questions. And maybe what we need is to anchor that to a narrative that we can resonate with, like, you know, a very specific example or a very specific tool that's being used, a very specific police department. Um, but I would encourage anyone that's cu that's curious to understand how facial recognition is being used um, in law enforcement to check out that work. Um, but if they're kind of looking for that story, you're right. That's something that like is still work to do with respect to telling that narrative of how facial recognition kind of interfaces with some of these real world um, uh, institutes and structures. The other thing I'm going to say is like it's not just law enforcement, and this is something that mm. is hard for people to understand because it's never communicated to us when facial recognition is used on us. But, um, you know, for example, HireVue is a company that uses facial recognition as part of their scoring system. You know, they'll evaluate or assess for different emotional cues to different questions and have that be part of your scoring system to get a particular job. So like in a recorded interview, such as this one, um, or, uh, you know, there's a lot of cases that I personally encounter in immigration of you know, different, uh, you know, a lot of a lot of the impetus for facial recognition becoming a field was because, you know, um, in like 1996, there was a push by the government in the US uh, to, to literally funnel millions of dollars uh, to sort of uh, propel the, the community forward, like the research community and kind of build the research community. And their incentive at the time, you know, a lot of the sponsors for that initial effort was Homeland Security, different intelligence agencies. Mm -hmm. So, um, it's a huge part of the kind of processes for immigration, for verifying identification of, and I, I think probably a lot of people as part of the immigration pipeline, you know, when you're at an airport to match your passport to your face, they go through a process of verification through facial recognition. Um, and like that's already kind of been rolled out for a while now. So there's a lot of these interesting um, use cases that like we actually experience, but we're kind of not necessarily registering as like, oh, this is actually facial recognition happening to me at the airport to verify my identity right now. Um, but yeah, like immigration is another space where this is very prevalent. Um, there's also, you know, situations in education of like monitoring people and kind of student security uh, systems. So yeah, there's definitely a lot of, a, lo a lot more applications and it's a lot more prevalent than people assume. And then the other thing I will kind of mention, uh, and it's connected to immigration and connected to law enforcement, but the idea of sort of digital surveillance of, you know, I post my face on my Twitter profile and I also post it on, you know, Facebook or whatever. And because of that, people can kind of connect these different accounts in different ways right. um, or find me even if I change my name completely, even if I change my hair completely and change everything about me because I can't change my like actual facial structure. Uh, yeah. So some of that digital surveillance is something that I think was very much exposed through Clearview of like, oh, wait, <laughs> uh, you know, when I put this information out there, um, it's actually very traceable and it, and it can kind of be used against me. Yeah, I, I think there's still, you know, there's still the the answer to this. Well, 
you know, I don't care if the government knows who I am. I haven't done anything <laughs> wrong. And I think, you know, my hope is that through, you know, what's happening now in in terms of, you know, the mm. kind of increased awareness of the, um, you know, for example, police brutality that we're yeah. seeing in this country. And, you know, maybe we can connect that to, you know, Abiba's algorithmic injustice and yeah. relational ethics and, and, you know, kind of minimizing potential harm to oh, yeah. undervoiced or, you know, communities without voices. And yeah. I'm not sure where I'm going yeah. with that. I no, think I'm expressing a- frustration. Like, how do you, how, yeah. you know, I think that there's, you know, and even, even personally, like, I think I thought about it when I got global entry, but I still yeah. did it. And I'm like, yeah. Eh, yeah. you know, it's like, it's a convenience in, yeah. in a lot of cases, but you know, I how do we parse through like, what's the cost of that convenience yeah. and yeah. for who, and at the, yeah. at, at what level, um, yeah. and there's just so many complex questions oh, no. and issues yeah, here. Sure. Like when I talk to sort of uh, my friends outside of the space about facial recognition, they'll be like, Oh, like this, the thing that like lets me have a Snapchat filter. Like I, want that like <laughs> I, I want to be able to have you know facial recognition identify you know my 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 um my key features so that I can sort of like the face landmark so I can put on like you know the buddy ears or whatever like that's important to me and I'm like okay no one's threatening your snapchat filter here calm down like, <laughs> and you know if anything if you're someone that sees yourself as this like citizen that like you know doesn't necessarily um that isn't guilty of anything like if anything that is sort of a reason to care more because you know especially if you're a person of color i think that um there's definitely risk uh with respect to just being in these systems which a lot of us are already you know a vast majority of americans are already in these systems already embedded in these systems um you know some of the test sets um coming in from homeland security are coming from like visa images and images that you uh, you know, and there's also, you know, r- recent reports of DMV, you know, driver license images sort of being shared with ICE and being integrated into these mugshot databases, right? So mm-hmm. there's no way to tell, you know, when someone takes your picture, where that picture will land, especially if it's a government agency taking that picture. And I think that that is something that we should sort of be concerned about on an individual basis, because um, especially if you're innocent, <laughs> because it can kind of implicate you in these processes and these um these uh these these systems that you know you really have no business sort of uh being pulled into and it and it inconveniences your life or could it has the potential to future to, for future inconveniences that could really uh disrupt your way of life right now so on an individual basis i do think there's enough reason for concern but if you're like fully like I have, you know, I, I have enough money for bail type person. Like I, like, even if I get like misidentified, I can protect myself on any, cause there are people that are like that. Um, and then it's at that moment that you kind of appeal to, um, okay, well think about those that do not have that privilege and people that are sort of increasingly vulnerable because of this technology. And I think that's why, um, a lot of the conversations around restriction, you know, I appreciate the companies for, publicly sort of denouncing the use of the technology in a way that, um, um, you know, has been sort of well received by the public and sort of well understood by the public. But I, I don't think I'm going to depend on these companies to go all the way. Like, I don't think, I don't think they're going to shoot themselves so in the foot that, um, you know, it actually achieves some of the protections that need to happen for the sake of some of these marginalized groups and communities most at risk. Um, I think that, um, you know, at best or at worst, what we can expect from these companies is to 
you know, uh, perhaps protect the majority of their, their clients or their users because their, their users are the concerns of their. Well, that's how we got here in the first place. Really different. Yeah. Um, like that's like at best, like the people that would buy, you know, like whatever product they're selling, like maybe they'll think about them, but for them to think about people that, you know, might never have interacted with Amazon in any way um, are completely out of their scope of concern. You know, how do we actually support and protect them? And that's when we start thinking about how important regulation is and how important it is mm-hmm. to restrict its use um, in very particularly sort of like uh, predatory cases against some of these very vulnerable groups. So I think that's the impetus for that direction is like it really shouldn't depend on companies sort of whim. The other thing, too, is like a lot of the companies that are most notorious, <laughs> this sounds awful, but like, you know, uh, Palantir, NEC, like, you know, some of these names people don't even know because they're they're not consumer facing even if palantir was to, to make a statement i'm not sure how many you know how many people like you know within my family or people that aren't in this space would like yeah. recognize that name nec a lot of people don't understand what that company is um but they're really a large a large part of this market they're actually a lot of the players and a lot of these small startups too that i don't even you know i haven't even been able to identify as vendors because they're so it's such an opaque system it's such an opaque process um, you know, how can we actually force government agencies to disclose and identify some of these groups so that we can begin to like question the functionality of their systems and audit them? Um, but also, you know, how can we protect the people that are currently affected by these companies that will very likely not change because facial recognition is their main product, <laughs> um, unlike with IBM, um, uh, Microsoft and Amazon, where they have other sources of, ven- of revenue. Um, so, you know, how do we, you know, rather than focusing on convincing those companies to change, how can we actually uh, push for regulation that can protect everybody, that can protect everyone, especially those at risk. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I think that there's still a lot of incentive, even though there's sort of potential for personal apathy, you know, uh, there's still a lot of incentive to to work on this and to think about sort of these broader implications and uh, push for regulation specifically. Cool. Well, Deb, thanks so much <laughs> for taking the time. Yeah, Great no to worries. chat with you. Covered yeah. a lot of ground. <laughs> you look like you're like, you're just like <laughs> every time I talk to someone about this, they're just like, what just happened? <laughs> like I, my, my parents are like, don't talk about facial recognition at the dinner table. At any point. That's awesome. <laughs> no one wants to hear about it. I'm like, okay. <laughs> I think I'm looking at the uh, I'm looking at the kind of recording timer here, and I'm like, we could go for another hour. I think on this. That's a very complicated issue for sure. And end up in a similar place, actually. Yeah. <laughs> Unless we're rolling up sleeves and like you know coming yeah. up with a taxonomy or something like that. Yeah. And it's it's moving so quickly too, right? Like things are happening every day. Something happened last week. Something. Well, how many of the things that we talked about just happened this week? <laughs> Like, yeah. And we didn't, the, I was going to ask you about the, uh, did you see the, was it one of the Springer publications? Um, yeah, we're trying to detect criminality. Out of, off of facial images? Yeah. <laughs> that was just a couple of days ago, yeah. I think. I saw, at least I, that's when I saw the tweet. Yeah, I've been telling people, like, I wonder what's going to happen tomorrow. Like, <laughs> it's going to be, there was uh, the summer that I was trying to write the Saving Face paper. We We wrote a section on sort of, uh, policy developments and facial recognition and we were keeping track of all the state developments all the bills and all the federal bills coming out literally every week i would have to rewrite the section just because it was just like constant stream of like oh, wow. bills coming out yeah it's crazy the the activity happening and because amazon set this arbitrary one-year deadline people are going into hyperdrive and things are moving even quicker um mm-hmm. so we'll see what happens but definitely an active space there's a lot to talk about mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah awesome well thanks so much deb Yeah, for sure. Thanks for having me. Take care.
All right, take care. All right, everyone, that's our show for today. To learn more about today's guest or the topics mentioned in this interview, visit twimmelai.com. Of course, if you like what you hear on the podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on your favorite podcatcher. Thanks so much for listening and catch you next time.